how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Mike Silski began his career following women's basketball team as a sports writer and a sophomore at LaSalle University. At this point, he realized he could write a sports story in the same way he wrote his English papers, and he was hooked to the craft. Currently, Mike works for the Philadelphia Inquirer and has published books such as How to Be Like Jackie Robinson, Fading Echoes, and most recently, The Rise, Kobe Bryant in the Pursuit of Immortality. In his latest book, the story follows Kobe's origin story, which was actually began in Philadelphia. With a focus on his early life, Mike pitched this book as Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. In this interview, Mike talks about structuring sports stories for the paper, his lucky encounter with a mentor early in his career, how he uncovered never-before-heard interviews with 17-year-old Kobe Bryant, and three pieces of advice for novice writers. So um, I spent my undergrad life at LaSalle University in North Philadelphia. And when I entered college, I knew I wanted to be involved as a career in sports media in some way, but I didn't know what. Uh, I didn't know if I thought I wanted to do broadcasting, if I wanted to work for a team, if I wanted to be a sports writer, anything like that. And uh, my sophomore, my freshman year, I joined the student newspaper and that was fine for a while. I, I enjoyed it. And then my sophomore year, um, I was covering the women's basketball team for the student newspaper at LaSalle. And I had a number of friends on the team, uh, girls who I'd lived in the same dorm with. And they had a game against Notre Dame at a time that Notre Dame was nationally ranked and really good. And they beat Notre Dame. And I was covering this game. And it was really cool. It was this great event to be at. And I was excited on behalf of my friends. And I went back to the student newspaper office and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to try to write this story about this game in the same way that I would write a paper for one of my English classes. Um, I'm going to put my, the same amount of time and effort and heart and soul into it. And I did that and I was happy with the results and I got a lot of positive feedback. 
from it. And when, once the story came out in the paper and that was the trigger, that, that was really the thing that, that made me realize writing was what I wanted to do. I, I liked the effort of the process. And then I really liked the result, you know, it's that old line, I guess it was Dorothy Parker. I hate writing, but I love having written. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the having written part. So once that happened, I really started to um, study in my own way, how writers wrote and how I could use some of their techniques um, to improve my own writing about sports. Um, did you kind of find a hybrid model for that? Because I know originally when you wrote for newspapers, all the information is up top, it's meant to be cut down. But if you're writing like an English paper, the most effective stuff might be at the end. How did you kind of work those two worlds together? Well, I had taken a fundamentals of journalism class that same sophomore year. So I had an idea of how I was supposed to structure things in terms of writing for a newspaper or writing a sports sort of story. Um, and so it wasn't too much of an adjustment. I'd always grown up reading newspapers and loving the sports page. And I, there were writers who I had admired. Um, one in particular, a guy named Bill Lyon, who actually had the job that I have now. I'm one of the full-time sports columnists at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he had that job when I was in high school and college. And I, I grew up just adoring his writing. And he became a mentor to me in a lot of ways. And I just, I learned a lot by osmosis, by reading what other terrific writers were doing, um, whether it was journalists, whether it was sports writers, whether it was um, novelists, you know, long form nonfiction writing, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously writing an academic paper is completely different from writing a, a story for a newspaper or a magazine or anything like that. But I was able to kind of my mother was an English teacher for 25 years. My dad was an English major in college. And so the idea of like structuring a particular piece of writing to a particular setting or audience, um, I kind of inherently understood that um, mm. as I started to embark on my own career. Did you have any early mentors or those type of things? It seems like as there's always a sports column job somewhere, but you kind of have to pay your dues maybe with sports you care less about or some of those type of things. Like, how did you know that if I just keep working my way up, eventually I'll get to a place where I want to get, like, how did you kind of think about those things? So, yes, I did have a mentor. His name was, uh, as I mentioned, Bill Lyon. He was the longtime sports columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, I really admired his writing. I admired um, the humane way that he approached sports. And I, he was an incredible stylist as well. He just wrote incredibly well. So <laughs> the summer after my sophomore year of college, I wrote him a letter um, saying, hey, you know, I'm a longtime fan and reader. Um, I would just love some tips in terms of getting involved in sports journalism as a profession and what does it take? And here are some samples of my writing. Do you have any suggestions or recommendations? And I enclosed a self-addressed stamped envelope in the note I sent to him. Well, he never wrote me back. What he did instead was look my name up in directory assistance and call me on a Sunday morning and say, Hey, I have to be at the Phillies Dodgers game next Friday night. Why don't you shadow me to the game? So I almost dropped the oh. phone and there I was at Veterans Stadium the following Friday in July of 1995, I think it was, um, alongside him as he went into the Phillies clubhouse and the press box and all of that. And at the end of the game, after he had filed his column, he said to me, I've read over your stuff. You have a lot of potential. There's a lot of good stuff there. Let's get together for lunch. And that was the beginning of a mentor-mentee relationship that lasted um, basically 25 years. Uh, until his passing in 2019. 
And um, so him saying that to me told me that I was on the right path, I thought. And then after I finished up college and got my master's degree, I came back to the Philly, Philadelphia area and was covering Friday night football, you know, at the high school level and the high school softball and basketball and paying my dues at a time when in journalism, when you really could do that kind of thing. And it allowed me to spread my wings. It allowed me to screw up and write some really bad things that only certain people got to see, which I think is really important in, in any writer's development. And, uh, but I knew I was on the right path. And if I stuck with it and, you know, Bill's encouragement um, was, was great. I got positive feedback from my editors. I learned generally not to overwrite too much. I had a tendency to do that as a very young writer. And, um, you know, in time, I knew I was kind of on my way. Kind of looking back on your career, have you thought much about uh, like this iceberg effect that like every article is just this, here's what's going on this week. But really what we want to know is your, your knowledge of Philadelphia sports. How do you think about your career and like connecting articles over years and following a player or a coach or those type of things? Yeah, well, I think um, so much of journalism or media coverage and writing nowadays is so specialized. Um, you're writing for an audience that is already really, really familiar with the topic that you're writing about, right? It, 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 everything is kind of niche oriented, it seems. And my niche, so to speak, has been Philadelphia sports for a long time. Um, and, you know, I can write about the history of it. I can write about all the teams and the players and the coaches and the athletes from a very broad sort of standpoint, but all under the umbrella of Philadelphia sports. So um, it's helpful to have stayed in that milieu for as long as I have. Um, because of my job now, whether it's writing a book about Kobe Bryant and, and hearkening back to the mid-1990s, or whether it's writing a column about the Sixers of the present day and comparing James Harden and Joel Embiid to Julius Serving and Moses Malone, I have that kind of breadth of knowledge and history and quote unquote, and I really accent the quote unquote expertise to be able to do that. And it allows me to tell stories or write my opinions or all that. And I can tie all those, I can connect all those threads, you know, having covered the Phillies in the Super Bowl in 2000, excuse me, the Phillies in the World Series in 2008, or the Eagles in the Super Bowl in 2005 or 2018. Uh, I have that level of familiarity that allows me to do the job in a way I need to do it. So tell me about a lot of how you kind of came to write this book. A lot of people are not familiar that Kobe lived in Philadelphia for a little while, I believe, because most people would just think LA and maybe Italy at some point when he was a kid. But tell me kind of how you pitched yourself as the one to write this book and how it kind of came together. Sure. Well, the elevator pitch that I used um, once I got the idea and had put the proposal together was that I wanted to write Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. Um after Kobe died in January of 2020, I ended up writing half a dozen to a dozen columns about him um, for the Inquirer in the aftermath of his death because he grew up just outside the city in Lower Marion Township. And he was, for most of his life, a pretty polarizing figure in the Philadelphia area. The people who knew him when he was growing up in the area, you know, really felt a sense of connection to him throughout his life. But Philadelphia is so parochial and so protective of its teams and the city itself that Kobe got a lot of blowback during his life for mostly for thinking himself beyond Philadelphia, that he had bigger and better things to do and they didn't necessarily involve the city where he grew up. 
he was going to do them on the West Coast. He was going to be the greatest player of all time. He needed to leave the area to go do those things. So I knew, and I kind of looked at Kobe. I could see how people around the country and around the globe looked at Kobe in exactly the way you described, which is he joined the Lakers when he was 17. And he spent his, he kind of grew up in front of the whole world with the Lakers. But I knew from having lived in the Philadelphia area most of my life and having worked here for so long that there was this kind of prequel story to him. Uh, his father having played in the NBA, his mother being from the city, the family moving and living in Italy, in Italy and Europe for eight years, coming back and Kobe's career in life at Lower Marion High School, winning a state championship, declaring for the NBA, taking Brandy to the prom, all of this kind of stuff that was really cool and textured and had a lot of drama to it. And so I kind of pitched myself to answer your question as I'm the one who can tell that story. Mm. If, if you're looking for the person to break down um, what happened to the Lakers over the course of his 20 years with them, I'm not your man because mm. I only covered him sporadically during his career with the Lakers. But I know the setting and the people that went into making Kobe who he is and who he was. And that's the story I can tell. And that was how I pitched it. And I was fortunate that, you know, it worked. Can you kind of briefly tell this opening story where you, where you have the, the line, remember the name, remember this name, Kobe Bryant. Can you kind of tell that story? Sure. So um, after Kobe died, um, a video surfaced from a friend of mine of, to make a very long story short, of the second high school game that Kobe ever played. Uh, he was a freshman at Lower Marion High School. It was in December of 1992. And that game was against my alma mater, my high school, Upper Dublin High School, which was very similar and very close to Lower Marion. And um, so at that time, there, here's this video. It's never been seen before. And I went back and started doing some research about the initial Kobe's initial foray into high school sports. And the very first newspaper article that was ever written about him was written in the Philadelphia Inquirer by a guy named Jeremy Treatman, who went on to become kind of a confidant and very close friend of Kobe's and who turned out to be really helpful in my writing the book. And he had this line in previewing Lower Marion's team that season remember this name, Kobe Bryant. And that was the first mention of Kobe in any newspaper article anywhere in December of 1992. And Jeremy turned out to be pretty prescient uh, in terms of his assessment of the kind of basketball player Kobe Bryant was going to turn out to be. So a lot of, uh, I talk a lot on, the, on this show about like the logistics of getting into publishing and some of those things. A lot of publicists and book agents say, why now? Most of that is obvious for this book, but do, how do you kind of see some of this other acceptance in the zeitgeist of like, let's say Jordan and Kobe and like the books from Tim Grover that says how relentless they were. There's also like all this, you know, about Tiger Woods, it's diff very different stories, but these three guys want to be the best of all time, not just the best today and that type of thing. How do you kind of see that just relentless nature of this you know, 0.001% that's kind of getting more in the news today. Do you see that as a reason to also write this book? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, you've put your finger on something there, Brock, that I think is really interesting. It's, I think people are looking for models or guidance on how to live their lives and be happy in their lives, mm -hmm. I think. And the idea that 
I'll stick to Kobe just for now. The, the idea and the truth of him was that he knew at the earliest possible age what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be. And he was willing, even at that age, to do whatever he had to do or he, what he thought he had to do to achieve that thing. And I think that's why the Mamba mentality and what you're getting at, that pursuit of greatness resonates so much, is that he's the rare figure who knew his entire life what he wanted and went after it and got it. And people find that compelling um, for reasons that you know, are probably endemic to each individual person. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's a matter of like, I want to do this thing. How do I go about doing it? Kobe was able to do it. Michael was able to do it. Tiger was able to do it. How did they do it? Let me read about it. And um, I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's what made this story so compelling was that, you know, here he is at age 10 and 11 playing pickup basketball games and icing his knees after these games. Like what 10 or 11 year old kid does that? And he would get these quizzical looks from the kids he would play against. You know, what is this dude doing? You know, he's, he thinks he's in the NBA, but Kobe had seen his father, who had been a professional player. He had seen other professional basketball players do, do this to take care of their bodies. So he's going to do the very same thing. And I think that sort of story resonates with people. The idea that you can singularly devote yourself to a pursuit and that you actually can achieve it. What kind of surprised you about Kobe? I mean, you had a, a pretty good knowledge to begin with, but when you started digging deeper or maybe interviewing people, what was something that surprised you about early Kobe? I, I think two things. Number one, how, just what we talked about, how committed he was so early uh, and how knowledgeable he was so early about what it would take to be great. You know, the idea that he would watch his father play NBA games on TV with his, you know, and, and he'd be home with his mother and he'd be three years old, four years old, and he'd have a towel over his shoulder and he'd dab his forehead, just like the NBA players did. Mom, I'm sweating, you know, and, I, and I, you know, he would mimic everything that he saw these guys do. Um, the other thing was how much of a searcher he was. And that's something that you get later in his life, once basketball, once he's retired from basketball and you know that he's an Academy Award winning filmmaker and he's writing children's books and things like that. But that he was always kind of looking to learn about himself. Um, the fact, for instance, that he joined the uh, Lower Marion High School Student Voice Organization, the Black Student Union at Lower Marion. Um, nobody knew that and nobody had ever really written about that in any depth or detail. And that was something that really interested me um, in exploring the early parts of Kobe's life because he was exploring his life at that time. What does it mean to be a Black male teenager in this kind of Tony suburb of Philadelphia. Um, you know, he didn't grow up the same way most of the black kids at Lower Marion did. He didn't grow up the way most of the white kids did. So what is that exploration like for him? Uh, what did he have to sacrifice to be as great at basketball, even at that age, in terms of his social life and his interactions with peers and friends and things like that? Um, so every, every tidbit of research I found was kind of this new revelation um, as to how he was, how he viewed himself and how he viewed he had to challenge himself and grow and live to get to where he wanted to go. Do you have kind of a, a writer question now? I mean, this is not your first book. You've got a book called Fading Echoes. You got a book about Jackie Robinson. 
I imagine each book you write, there's maybe more and more responsibility, especially writing about Kobe within two years of his death. How did you kind of deal with some of those struggles and challenges in terms of like just the day-to-day logistics of like making this the best book you possibly could? So that's a deep question and (laughs) there's a lot to it. Um, So one of the first things I did was reach out to his mother and father, Joe and Pam, and to his wife, Vanessa. Um, And I wanted to A, let them know that I was going to pursue the project and B, let them know that I would love for them to speak with me if they were willing. So I wrote Joe and Pam a letter and sent them samples of my writing from the Inquirer. And Joe, I had actually met 25 years ago. I was an undergrad at LaSalle. He was the assistant men's basketball coach there at the time. And I just said, hey, you know, I would love to have you speak to me as part of my research for this book. If you don't, I completely understand. I never heard back from them directly, but through intermediaries, you know, people within the family, friends, I knew, I know that they're aware of the book and they knew I was doing the book. Um, Vanessa, I ended up speaking to an intermediary to her. And this person told me, look, she's not going to help you, but she's not going to stand in your way either. And that was less important to me because the book was going to cover the period of Kobe's life before he had met Vanessa. So it wasn't as important to me to, to speak to her. Um, because there wasn't a whole lot of insight she would probably be be able to lend me. Uh, In terms of the timing, I just tried to reach out with as much sensitivity uh, and understanding to as many people as I could. Um, I was dealing with and wanting to interview people who had known Kobe when he was 16, 17, 18 years old, and they still held that image and that reality of him in their hearts and minds. They didn't see him as the basketball star. They saw him as the kid who sat next to them in English class or the kid who sat next to them on the team bus at Lower Marion and would white knuckle it when the bus went over a body of water, you know, because he was afraid of heights and there the bus is on the bridge and all this stuff. So they, some of them were very eager to speak to me because they had not talked about Kobe at length to anyone in the quote unquote media before. And they felt like they knew him well and the part of him that they knew had not been presented to the public very much. Some of them didn't wanna speak to me. And I totally understand that because the the reaction and wound of his death was still so fresh. So I ended up finding more than a hundred people who were willing to speak to me. Um, I spent a lot of time digging through archival research. I spent time at the Lower Marion Historical Society going through old newspaper articles, old uh, student newspaper issues from the Lower Marion High School student paper, Kobe's old yearbooks, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, revisiting his old haunts, that sort of thing. Um, And you just try to tell the story as honestly and and as accurately as you can. Um, I didn't want to turn him into a one-dimensional figure. I didn't want him to be the best person in the history of people. And I didn't want him to be a villain. and I was able to uncover some, some details and some anecdotes that presented him in full at that point in his life, which was really important to me because he did have a complicated life. There are people who look at him based on the sexual assault charges from 2003 and 2004 who don't view him, him as a hero at all. And I was very cognizant of that and very sensitive to that and wanted to make sure that in writing about his early life, I presented him as here is how a man in full developed. Here's how he was. And by looking at who he was when he was younger, you can see the man that he became. Get into the weeds a little bit. When you were 
pitching to talk to these people, cold emails or cold calls. Did you say that North Star? Did you just say, I'm just looking to tell the most honest, accurate story? Was that something you said to them? Yeah, I didn't want to mislead them. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you don't want to, because then your credibility goes out the window right away as a reporter and a writer. Um, you know, and I would ask people some uncomfortable questions about how did, you know, about Kobe at that time, what kind of teammate was he? Did he bully, you know, his teammates? And you got some frank and honest answers about it. Um, and his guidance counselor gave me a, an anecdote that I'm sure you're familiar with if you've read the book um, about a sexual harassment seminar that Kobe tried to walk out of when he was a senior in high school. Hmm. Um, he offered that to me without even me asking about it. And as a writer, I was really relieved to get that anecdote because it allowed me to kind of address the elephant in the room, so to speak, without having to shoehorn it into the narrative, if that right. makes sense. Right. Um, I just wanted to tell the story. I didn't want to preach one way or another. I wanted to just present as much as I could, write the book as intimately as I could, and then let that story stand on its own and let the reader judge it for him or herself. So a couple of years ago, I spoke with Jonathan Eag. He wrote the big a book about Ali. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of talked about he would use biographies to find facts when during his research, autobiographies to find feelings. How do you think about facts and feelings in a longer piece like this? How do, I mean, facts are obvious, but how do feelings work their way in and emotions and some of those things? I think a lot of that comes down to the interviews you do. Um, who do you talk to? What kind of questions do you ask of them? Um, I think Jonathan's right on the money with that. I think, you know, I used a lot of previously written books to kind of give myself a sense of the narrative structure of the facts of the situation. And then once you know those facts, you can then, um, if you're able to talk to the individuals involved in those situations, um, you know, for instance, early in the book, I get into Joe Bryant's career and history, and he had a, an unfortunate incident early in his NBA career. Um, and he wouldn't talk to me, but there were people, there was at least one, if not more than one person affiliated with the Philadelphia 76ers, the team he was playing for at the time that this, um, incident happened. So I was able to get insights from that person. Um, and I went back to really old newspaper articles to Jonathan's point and was able to get details about the incident, details about how Joe and his peers and his family reacted to the incident. Um, and I think that's just a matter of making sure you do your research as deeply as you possibly can. You cannot, 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 cannot settle for a Google search. I mean, it's, it's so easy to fall into the ease with which so much information is available to us now. Um, and yet you can't settle for that. If you really want to tell an honest and true story, you have to do the legwork. You have to go to the, to the archives. You have to go where the old newspaper clippings are. I spent a couple of days at Temple University's library because they were the only place in the world that had archives of the old Philadelphia Bulletin newspaper, which doesn't exist anymore. Its archives are only available in hard copies in these little manila envelopes. And I spent hours going through them looking for stories about Joe Bryant. And the Bulletin in the 1970s covered Joe Bryant like he was LeBron James. Mm -hmm. So I had all this material, raw, raw material at my fingertips that I could weave into, uh, an early, you know, a narrative early on in the book. 
if you ever get in a point like this where you feel writer's block, does that happen to you or not? Or is it more about just like going back to the research? Do you have phases of the process or do you kind of jumble writing and research together to fill out the pieces and outlining and some of those things? Well, I start with that with a book like this, I start with an outline. Um, and then you have to write and report at the same time. I only had a year to finish the manuscript. So I was writing, reporting, writing, reporting. And then, um, I had kind of a bombshell uh, in December of 2021, excuse me, December of 2020. I was a couple months out from my deadline for the manuscript. And a person I referenced earlier, Jeremy Treatman, who had been a confidant of Kobe's, kind of like a, an assistant coach on the basketball team slash like a media relations representative. He would, he would kind of set up all of Kobe's interviews when Kobe was at Lower Marion and, and his star was really starting to rise. Jeremy had done a series of interviews with Kobe during Kobe's senior year and his first year with the Lakers. They were trying to collaborate on a book at the time and the book never came off. And Jerry, Jeremy couldn't find the tapes of these interviews for 25 years. And then December of 2020, he's cleaning out his garage because he's moving and he finds the tapes. So he called me up and this was, this was December 22nd, 2020. He calls me up and he says, Mike, I found the tapes. The next morning I drove to his house. He hands me a giant Ziploc bag full of these micro cassette tapes of Kobe talking when he's 17, 18, 19 years old that nobody's heard before. So then I had to go through and listen to all those tapes and weave Kobe's thoughts and, and insights in real time at the time he was living them into the narrative of the book. Um, so th that was a gold mine, but it complicated and <laughs> complicated the writing process uh, a fair bit. But in terms to answer your question about writing writer's block, I don't get it because I'm conditioned, honestly, as a sports columnist working on deadlines every day. There's a saying in the business and anybody who writes in journalism knows this. It's better to be done than good. It's got to You got to finish it. And if I feel like I'm stuck then that means in the writing of a book or a longer narrative piece, that means that I haven't done the reporting. I've got to go back and do a little more research, do a little more reporting, talk to more people and get myself going because um, the writer's block doesn't exist. I'm not making up the story. I'm writing nonfiction. So if I don't have something, then I got to go find it. Did this also, these tapes, did this also lead to the podcast or tell me kind of how that came to be as well? Yes, it absolutely did. We, we were going to do the, the podcast is called I Am Kobe, and it's a 12 part narrative podcast um, that kind of complements the book. And it's based largely around Kobe's friendship with Jeremy and their influence on each other and, and how Kobe's rise influenced their friendship. But, yeah, you can hear these tapes on the podcast. And, yes, it very much influenced the, the storytelling nature of the podcast. And um, it was just it was incredible to be able I get chills. I got chills listening to them. I get chills thinking about the fact that I was able to hear these tapes of Kobe talking about his relationship with his mother and father, talking about what it was like to meet Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson for the first time, talking very insightfully and movingly about why he loves basketball. Um, you know, a theme that kind of comes up over and over again throughout his life. So um, I was very fortunate that Jeremy decided to clean out his garage um, because uh, those, those tapes were, were terrific. We'll just do uh, one more. Thanks again for your time. I like to kind of sure. wrap these up with 
if you were starting today or, or any advice you wish you had or advice you'd like to pass on to young sports columnists or people interested in writing about sports books at some point, what advice might you pass on? I would say three things. Uh, number one, do the legwork. Um, Bill Lyon, who I mentioned a couple of times here, was such an, uh, a terrific writer. And I was so taken with his writing that when I got started in the business, I think I undersold to myself how much reporting matters. And now it is the thing that drives everything that I do, whether it's writing my column, whether it is doing a book like this. Um, you know, I've started work on my next book and I'm already like, you know, trying to figure out how do I get in touch with the people I need to get in contact with? What sort of logistical hoops do I need to jump through to get the material. That's what matters. You can, you can write as well as you want to write, but if you don't have the raw materials, you're not going to get anywhere. And that leads to my other two pieces of, of advice, which I give to everybody who says they want to be a writer, which is read as widely and deeply as you can. Read poetry, read politics, read fiction, read nonfiction, read Maya Angelou, read William F. Buckley, read everything and everyone because you will learn by osmosis. You'll learn what works and what doesn't, and you'll find out more about what you believe and what you don't believe. And all of that matters. And then write. You have to write. Write to yourself. Write. Sit down every day and do it. Routine matters. And the only way you're going to get better at writing is to write and then to write some more and then to write some more. Um, one of my favorite writers of all time was Roger Ebert, the film critic. Um, who most people of a certain generation probably know from TV, uh, you know, from Siskel and Ebert, but he was an incredible film critic, an incredible writer. And the advice he would give the young writers is just start, just start writing. Don't worry about how it reads or where you end up, just write. If it's not what you hope for, start again. Now you know more about your hopes. And I think that's tremendous advice. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.